we'd like to take a moment to tell you about our other podcast, Everyday Saints. Everyday Saints is about the topics we all want to hear, and maybe some you don't even know are a thing. Hosted by me, Valerie Loveless, we delve into the things Everyday Saints want to know more about. Little-known temple facts, challenges from the prophet, how to live your best life in the spirit of the gospel, and more. Look for the Captain Moroni in your podcasting app. Brought to you by Cedarfort Publishing and Media. Hello, and welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm your guest host, Casey Paul Griffiths, and I am the author with Mary Jane Woodger of 50 Relics of the Restoration. And this week, I get the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about Doctrine and Covenants, section 41 to 44. So if you want to grab your scriptures, we'll open up to section 41, and we'll start talking about it. Section 41 uh, is the first section received when Joseph Smith arrives in Kirtland, Ohio. You remember back in section 37, a commandment was given to the members of the church that lived in New York and Pennsylvania to gather to the Ohio, and that all members of the church henceforward should gather to that spot. It's the first commandment given in this dispensation to gather. In Ohio, and why Ohio, was because the missionaries led by Oliver Cowdery that were sent out in section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants stopped there and converted Sidney Rigdon and a large part of his congregation. So now there are actually more members of the church in Ohio than there were left behind in New York and Pennsylvania, the cradle of the Restoration. These members, too, in Ohio had had special spiritual experiences preparing them for the coming of Joseph Smith. For instance, Newell K. Whitney, who eventually is going to be called as the second bishop of the church, and his wife, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, uh, later recorded this spiritual experience. Uh, Sister Whitney said, It was midnight, as my husband and I in our house at Kirtland were praying to the Father to be shown the way the spirit rested upon us and the cloud overshadowed the house. The house passed away from our vision. We were not conscious of anything but the presence of the spirit and that cloud that was over us. A solemn awe pervaded us. We saw the cloud and felt the spirit of the Lord. Then we heard a voice out of the cloud saying, prepare to receive the word of the Lord for it is coming. At this we marveled greatly, but from that moment we knew not that the word of the Lord was coming. Now, a few weeks later, they converted to the church after being taught by the missionaries. And in February 1831, according to Sister Whitney, a sleigh carrying four people pulled up in front of the store that the Whitneys ran in Kirtland. One of the men in the sleigh, she described him as a young and stalwart personage, jumped out, walked into the store, walked up to Newell K. Whitney, extended his hand cordially as if to an old familiar acquaintance and proclaimed, Newell K. Whitney, thou art the man. Uh, Newell responded, you have the advantage of me, and he mechanically shook the man's head and said, I could not call you by my name as you have me. The stranger then replied with a smile, I am Joseph the prophet. You have prayed me here. Now what do you want of me? Joseph explained that he'd seen the Whitney's in vision before he came to Kirtland, and Newell introduced Joseph to his wife Elizabeth, who later remarked, I, recall, I remarked to my husband that this was the fulfillment of the vision that we had seen of the cloud of glory resting upon our house. Now, when Joseph arrives in Kirtland, there's this fledgling uh, convert community that's already doing great, but it also has problems too. Joseph Smith later writes in his history that there were nearly 100 members, uh, but there were some 
problems. He said there was a plan of common stock which had existed among them called the family, whose members had generally embraced the everlasting gospel, but more readily abandoned the more perfect word of the Lord. And false spirits were easily discerned and rejected by the light of revelation. So you've got this wonderful group of converts that are enthusiastic to hear the gospel in Kirtland, Ohio. And they're already trying to live parts of the gospel. They're trying to figure out a way to take care of the poor by having all things in common. They're trying to experience the fruits of the spirit, but they're just a little bit off in how they're doing these things. And so when Joseph arrives, he starts to receive revelations to remedy the situation. The first one of which is section 41 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the big development in section 41 is that the Lord announces he's going to give them a law, and then he calls the person that's going to be in charge of uh, facilitating the law. The Lord says, verse 3, By the prayer of your faith ye shall receive my law, that ye may know how to govern my church and have all things right before me. And I will be your ruler when I come. Behold, I come quickly, and ye shall see that my law is kept. If you remember back to section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the saints were commanded to gather to Kirtland, they were told to gather for two reasons. One was that that was where they would receive the law, and two was that they would receive an endowment from on high. Now, they get the law almost immediately after they come to Kirtland, but the endowment is more complicated and ultimately fulfilled when the temple is built in Kirtland, but comes in a number of ways over the years. Now, section 41, as I mentioned, is significant because if you look in verse 9, this is where the very first bishop of the church, Edward Partridge, is called. The verse reads, I've called my servant Edward Partridge, and I give a, who I give a commandment, that he should be appointed by the voice of my church and ordained a bishop unto the church to leave his merchandise and spend all his time in the labors of the church. Now, you might notice a couple differences there. Bishops don't labor full-time today. Bishop Partridge did. Uh, bishop Partridge was also remunerated a little bit. Um, because of his service that he put in. Bishop Partridge also wasn't bishop over a ward like we're familiar with today. His calling would be closer to that of the presiding bishopric, uh, presiding bishop of the church, who today is Gerald Cowsey. His job was to take charge over the law of consecration and to make sure that the saints were were having their temporal needs met. Church was small enough at this time, just a couple hundred people, that Joseph Smith could still act as the spiritual high priest over the church. Later on, when the church got bigger and bigger and we had to subdivide into wards and stakes, the calling of a bishop was uh, combined with the calling of a presiding high priest, and that's what your bishop and your word does right now. He's the bishop, which means he's the head of the Aaronic priesthood, and he's in charge of your temporal needs, and he's the presiding high priest, so he oversees the spiritual needs of the church as well. Uh, These verses give a couple qualifications for a bishop, but probably the most important one that's listed here is in verse 11. The Lord says that Edward Partridge was called because his heart is pure before me. He's like Nathaniel of old, in whom there is no guile. Now, over time, the role of a bishop would become more and more and more important. In fact, President Gordon B. Hinckley, speaking to the bishops of the church in 1998, told them, your personal behavior must be impeccable. You must be a man of integrity above reproach of any kind. Your example will set the tone for your people to follow. You must be fearless in denouncing evil, willing to take a stand for the right, uncompromising in your defense of truth. While all of this requires firmness, it must be done with kindness and love. And then he went on to say, 
You are the father of the word and the guardian of your people. You must reach out to them in times of sorrow and sickness and distress. You stand as president of the Aaronic priesthood, and with your counselors you must give leadership to the deacons, the teachers, the priests, and see that they grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, first thing that happens is we have a bishop called in Kirtland. First bishop called anywhere in the church. And then the next thing is the Lord's promise that the law will be fulfilled. Now, the law is section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 42 is given just a few days after Joseph Smith arrives in Kirtland and comes primarily in answer to the questions that the saints in and around Kirtland have. In fact, the historical record we have uh, met, Revelation Book 1, which is available on the Joseph Smith paper site, actually goes through and explains that the law is a collection of several revelations. If you look through the text itself, you'll notice that every few verses it says, even so, amen, or something close to that. That signals the end of one section of the law and the beginning of another section of the law. If you go back and look at the record from what we can discern, the questions that create the law are first, shall the church continue to come together to one place or in separate establishments? Second, they wanted to know about the law regulating the church in her present situation to the time of her gathering. Third, they asked how were elders to dispose of their families while they're proclaiming repentance or otherwise engaged in the services of the church. Fourth, they asked how far is it the will of the Lord that we should have dealings with the world and how should we conduct our dealings with them? And finally, the elders asked what preparation should we make for the saints that are coming from the east and where and how. Now, a few weeks after the first part of the law was revealed, um, Joseph met again with seven elders, and they received the last part of the law, which constitutes verses 74 to 93. And it seems like on that occasion, their question was, how do we deal with really serious transgressions? So the law really is a collection of several laws. Uh, each section of section 42 covers a different part of these questions that the saints had and uh, gave the Lord's instructions on how to deal with them. Now, the centerpiece of the entire revelation is basically uh, verses 30 to 42, which constitute the law of consecration. But everything in here is still important and everything in here is still used in a lot of ways to govern the church. For instance, Verses 1 through 10 of section 42, uh, you'll remember, are how to manage the gathering, when the church should gather, and what they should do. The Lord instructs the elders of the church there to, quote, go into the regions westward, this is verse 8, and build up my church in every region. And then it tells them that there is going to eventually be a new Jerusalem built or a holy city. During this time, right before Joseph Smith came to Kirtland, he had been translating the Bible and had it had it revealed to him that Enoch had built a city anciently uh, called Zion. The Book of Mormon in turn talks about a new Jerusalem. This is in Ether chapter 13 that would be built up upon this continent. And that's eventually where the church is going to be expected to gather. But for now, the Lord's telling them to gather to the Ohio and then he'll give them further instructions on where the location of the new Jerusalem is going to be built. Those instructions, by the way, come along in section 57 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, verses 11 through 17 could be designated as the law of teaching in the church. If you read through these verses, the Savior says some very, very important things that we still need to follow within the church. For instance, verse 12, again, the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible, and the Book of Mormon, in the which is the fullness of the gospel. 
and they shall observe the covenants and church articles to do them, and these shall be their teachings as they shall be directed by the Spirit. You can see a little bit of this emphasis in the new Come Follow Me program that we followed these last couple of years, where the Lord says, look, when you teach, go to the scriptures first. The scriptures at that time are the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but the Lord does say to follow the covenants and church articles. This is a reference to the articles and covenants of the church, section 20, which is the forerunner to the doctrine and covenants. The point is, when it comes to teaching in the church, we are expected to draw primarily from the scriptures, from the standard works, from the canon. This is where we we get our knowledge and our understanding. Elder D. Todd Christofferson, talking about the importance of scripture, said, Scripture tutors us in principles and moral values essential to maintaining civil society, including integrity, responsibility, selflessness, fidelity, and charity. In scripture, we find vivid portrayals of the blessings that come from honoring true principles as well as the tragedies that befall when individuals and civilizations discard them. So we teach the scriptures, right? That's the second law dealt in here. If we look at verses 18 through about verse 29, these are the basic commandments of the church. And you'll note here a really close correspondence to the 10 commandments originally given to the Mo- to Moses and the Israelites. So uh, a few additions to this, for instance, verse 22, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart and cleave unto her and none else, and he that looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall deny the faith and shall not have the spirit. And if he repents not, he shall not be, he, he shall be cast out. So these commandments, like I said, have a very, very close uh, correspondence to the Ten Commandments that are given by Moses on, on Mount Sinai. And instead, uh, redirect them, recommit them to members of the church in our day. It would be fair for you to say, we don't follow the Ten Commandments just because Moses gave them and the Israelites did. They're renewed in our time. They were given again in 1831 when Joseph Smith received what was and still is the law of the church. Now, the main focus of our discussion today is going to be on verses 30 through 42, or the law of consecration, partially because there's a lot of misunderstanding about how consecration works in the church, and because this is one of the broader themes of the Doctrine and Covenants. There are a lot of sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, at least 20, that deal with consecration. And the Lord really feels strongly that the obligation to take care of the poor is really important to the church. So let's start in verse 30, which if if 30 through 42 is the law of consecration, then verse 30 is consecration in a nutshell. Just says simply, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support, that which thou hast to impart unto them with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. Now, part of the reason why Joseph Smith is asking about the law of consecration and the Lord is giving them answers is because there were members of the church in and around Kirtland that were already attempting on their own to live the law of consecration. There's a really generous guy named Isaac Morley. Isaac Morley is a veteran of the War of 1812. He has a nice farm on the outskirts of Kirtland, and he's just a really generous, kind, giving person. And even before the missionaries arrived, he had read in Acts chapter 5, where it said the disciples have all things in common. And he had read 3 Nephi 4, which talks about the disciples uh, in, in the Americas having all things in common, and had decided to figure out a way to do that. So, Isaac Morley invites a bunch of people to come to his farm and they all live together common stock. In fact, one non-Mormon history from this time 
written by Josiah Jones, said Isaac Morley had contended that in order to restore the ancient order of the things in the Church of Christ, it was necessary that there should be a community of goods among the brethren, and accordingly a number of them removed to his house and farm, built houses and worked and lived together, and composed what is here called the Big Family, which at this time consisted of 50 or 60 old or young. Now, we don't know all the details about how the Big Family chose to live consecration, but it sounds like what they did was just have everything in common, that there weren't any real rules or regulations and that everybody just agreed to share everything that they had. Now that's noble, but it's also a recipe uh, for trouble. When I was a freshman in college, for instance, my roommates and I decided we were going to live the law of consecration. I was a I was a student at BYU, and we all felt kind of idealistic, so we were like, if you want to eat my ramen, take my ramen. If you want to drink my milk, drink my milk. That lasted about two weeks in our apartment, um, partially because some people, you know, didn't put in what they got out. Other people were idle. Other people were lazy. Some people just got annoyed when we ran out of food. Uh, I remember opening the fridge two weeks into our little consecration experiment and seeing someone having written their name in Sharpie on their milk and thinking, we couldn't even make it two weeks living the law of consecration. Well, according to the sources we have from the time, this is what started to happen with Isaac Morley's experiment. John Whitmer, who's a member of the church from the East, comes and sees Isaac Morley's big family, and he later writes, the disciples had all things in common and were going to destruction very fast as to temporal things. They would take each other's clothes and each other's property and use it without leave, and that brought on confusion. And you can kind of see um, the idea here that we just have everything in common together, that that's the way consecration works, doesn't quite hold up. In fact, it doesn't fit what's in section 42 either. When we imagine consecration, we sometimes imagine all of us living on a farm and someone walks in and eats your food or takes your clothes or rides off on your horse. And that was not how the Lord set up consecration in section 42. To start, just the word consecration itself means not yours and mine, ours. It means sacred. To consecrate something is to make it sacred. That means that you're giving it over to the Lord. And the Lord's instructions, uh, as set forth in section 42, did still allow for things like uh, private property, personal stewardship, ownership. Uh, it allowed not just for your needs to be met, but for your wants to be met as well. So let's take a look in verses 31 through 33, where the Lord starts to explain the particulars of how this worked. So the way it would work basically is that a person would approach the bishop of the church. This is in verses 31, 32. Remember, we've just had Edward Partridge called as the bishop of the church, and you would consecrate everything that you have to the church. You'd basically sit down with the church and make a list of your possessions. For some of the people in the church back then, it wasn't very, very much stuff. But they made a list of the bishop, and then the bishop assigns them a steward. In fact, you'll note in verse 32, it says, Every man shall be made accountable unto me, a steward over his own property, or that which he has received by consecration, as much as is sufficient for himself and his family. So the idea that you could just have somebody walk into your house and eat your food, or take your clothes, or ride off on your horse, didn't work the way the Savior described consecration. You met with the bishop, and you told the bishop what you had, and then you and the bishop together worked out your stewardship. You figured out exactly what you needed for your family to survive, and when that stewardship was given to you, it was your private property, if that makes sense. Now, this was a negotiation between you and the bishop. In fact, Joseph Smith in 1833 said, quote, every man must be his own judge, 
how much he should receive and how much he should suffer to remain in the hands of the bishop. The matter of consecration must be done by the mutual consent of both parties. So you would take your stewardship back. Let's say you have three horses to simplify this down. And you go into the bishop and say, I have three horses. The bishop says, how many do you need to take care of your family? You could say, well, we could probably get by with two horses. So one horse would go to the church and two horses would be your stewardship. And at that point, those are yours. Nobody else can take them. Now, as consecration goes on, the instructions in section 42 say that once you had taken your stewardship out for a test drive, you could go back again, meet with the bishop, and then offer surplus. Let's say you can really get by with one horse. You could go into the bishop and say, hey, we tried having two. We're probably fine with just one. Do you want to take the other horse? At which point, verse 33 actually says that every man could be amply supplied and could also receive according to his wants. It's possible at this point the bishop could say, well, everybody's pretty well taken care of right now. So I know you don't need two horses, but do you want two horses? And you could say, yeah, that sounds good. Now, as it goes on, what's left over? This is verse 34. The residue is kept in a storehouse to administer to the poor and needy and shall be appointed by the high council of the church and the bishop and his council. So, uh, that, that third horse that you consecrated to the church would go into a storehouse and it could be used to assist the poor. Let's say there's another family in your settlement that doesn't have a horse at all. The bishop could deed it to them as part of their stewardship, or it could be used to purchase lands, houses of worship. It says in verse 35, and for the building up of the new Jerusalem and to help people build and gather two temples. So it's possible that the bishop could sell the horse and take the money to try and build a new meeting house or to assist people immigrating to Zion. The point is you had private property and it wasn't something that happened once and you were over with you went in to talk to the bishop and were just honest with him about what you had, what you could sacrifice. And once everybody's needs were met, everybody's wants could be met. This is a lot different from the laws that we live in the church today, but the principles obviously remain the same. For instance, the idea that there's a storehouse of goods uh, is something that's still constant within the church. There are bishop storehouses located throughout the United States and around the world based on how many resources we have to use, but the storehouse is actually something much bigger than that. President Thomas S. Monson phrased it this way. He said, The Lord's storehouse includes the time, talents, compassion, consecrated material, and financial means of faithful church members. These resources are available to the bishop in assisting those in need. See, another mistake we make with the law of consecration is we think of it just as a financial and material law. Consecration is holistic. It has to do with your time. It has to do with the gifts that you've been given. It has to do with all the resources that you have. The Lord's storehouse could be a place where people go and get food. It could also be when the bishop contacts the guy in the ward who's good at fixing cars and says, we have a family that needs help. Or when uh, the leaders of the ward decide that they need to do a service project uh, to help someone in the ward who, who who's getting a little older and can't take care of their home. That's all consecration. Now the Lord gives a few additional commandments here. For instance, verse 41, let all things be done in cleanliness before me. And verse 42, thou shalt not be idle. He that is idle shall not eat the bread nor wear the garments of the laborer. So the essence of consecration really is this idea that you stop seeing 
possessions as your own, even though you have a stewardship, and start seeing how you can use what you have to help other people. President J. Reuben Clark, uh, who drew on the principles of consecration to launch the church welfare system, uh, one time said this, the basic principle of all the revelations on the law of consecration is that everything we have belongs to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord may call upon us for any and all the property which we have because it belongs to him. This, I repeat, is the basic principle. So when the bishop calls you and says, hey, we need you to fill a calling and it's going to be two or three hours a week, you're consecrating. When you get a really intense calling that's maybe 20 or 30 hours a week, that's consecration as well. When you get asked to minister to a family, that's consecration. When you get asked to drive uh, your neighbor's kids to work, that's consecration. It's just seeing the things that belong to you as belonging to the Lord and being able to use them. Now, we're going to jump over a little bit to verse 53, and then we'll circle back, where the Lord says, uh, further about consecration, stand in the place of thy stewardship. Don't take thy brother's garment. Thou shalt pay for that which they receive of thy brother. And if they obtain us, this is verse 55, more than that which would be for thy support, thou shalt give it unto my storehouse. And all things shall be done according to what I have said. So consecration also relied upon people being honest, people being forthright about what they were doing, and people also committing to live the laws of the land. To, to take care of one another. Now, the question might be asked, do we still live the law of consecration? I remember sitting in the gospel doctrine and hearing somebody get up and say, well, we used to live the law of consecration, but it was too hard. So the Lord gave us a lesser law and someday we'll live consecration in the millennium. One of the strange things about that is I don't know of any place in the Doctrine and Covenants where it rescinds the law of consecration. It's true that in section 119, the law of tithing is given. But tithing is considered a law of sacrifice and a subset of law of consecration. If you read through section 119, the Lord actually talks about their surpluses and their stewardships as if consecration is still going on. And tithing is going to be a way of facilitating consecration. So it's best to not think that tithing replaced the law of consecration. It's best to think that tithing is part of the law of consecration that just manages the financial part of consecration. The other reason why I think you could make a pretty good case that we live the law of consecration is the temple. I'm not giving away anything that isn't in a temple prep manual here, but people that go to temples make sacred covenants there. One of their covenants is to live the law of consecration. They also covenant to live the law of chastity. Imagine if someone got up in gospel doctrine and said, well, we used to live the law of chastity, but it was too hard. So the Lord gave us a lesser law and someday we will live the law of chastity when we're ready for it. It's the same way with consecration. We we have to ask ourselves well, this is what consecration looked like in 1831 when they had a barter economy, when the government literally didn't even print paper money, they just minted coins. And you more commonly, rather than using money to purchase things, using your debit card, would go and trade and barter with your neighbor. We have to ask ourselves what consecration looks like in the 21st century. President Gordon B. Hinckley said directly, the law of sacrifice and the law of consecration were not done away with and are still in effect. So what does the law of consecration look like today? Well, 
Listen to this quote by President Henry B. Eyring. He said this in 2011. The Lord has invited his children to consecrate their time, their means, and themselves to join with him in serving others. His way of helping has at times been called living the law of consecration. In another period, his way was called the United Order. In our time, it is called the Church Welfare Program. The names and details of operation are changed to fit the needs and conditions of people. But always, the Lord's way to help those in temporal need requires people who out of love have consecrated themselves and what they have to God and his work. So the law of consecration is what is called the Joseph Smith's day. In Brigham Young's day, they never really gave up on it. It was called the United Order. Uh, In Brigham Young's day, there were several successful iterations of the United Order that didn't follow exactly the instructions given in section 42, but rather relied on the principles that were in section 42. Principles like involving the bishop, uh, consecrating your goods, having a common storehouse that people could draw resources from and being um, hard workers, not being idle. There were places like Brigham City and Orderville, Utah, where consecration lasted decades and only ended because the federal government intervened. Likewise, in the 20th century, when we faced a major, major uh, economic crisis uh, in the 1930s, uh, church leaders like Heber J. Grant and Harold B. Lee and J. Reuben Clark went back to the law of consecration and adapted it as the church welfare program. Church welfare is still around. It still does so much to help people. And we've expanded it even to things beyond like um, the church humanitarian programs that go out and help people when there's been some kind of natural disaster. So this is a major, major turning point in the early restoration. Law of consecration that's given in section 42 is going to be revisited again and again and again as the Savior tweaks and adjusts and and helps us figure out how consecration works, not just for a church of a couple hundred people, but for a couple thousand, then a couple hundred thousand, then a couple million, then a worldwide faith. But the idea that we see what we own as belonging to the Lord and we ask ourselves every day how we can use it to bless and help those that are less fortunate than us is something that is universal and the church has never been rescinded and is at the heart of who and are and what we do. You might remember President Monson when he was president of the church added a fourth mission to the church. We're kind of all familiar with the idea that we proclaim the gospel, we perfect the saints, and we redeem the dead. President Monson added a fourth mission, which is we assist the poor and the needy. And in the church handbook that was published just last year, it emphasizes again those four missions, one of which is to take care of the poor and the needy. Well, speaking of the needy, let's jump to verse 43. Verse 43 is the next law found in the greater law, which could be called the law of healing. This talks about how we help people that are sick. Uh, Verse 43, whosoever among you are sick and have not faith to be healed, but believe shall be nourished with all tenderness, with herbs and mild food, and not by the hand of the enemy. But if someone is sick, he says that the elders of the church two or more can be called and pray and lay their hands upon them. And if they die, they shall die unto me. And if they live, they shall live unto thee, unto me. This sets up the idea that elders, um, that those that hold the priests in the church can go out and perform healings. But the Lord does place some limits here. For instance, some people that are blessed are still going to die. They die unto the Savior. And he also says in verse 48, again, it shall come to pass that he that have faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. The really difficult thing here is that we, we always want the people that we love to be healed, but sometimes they're appointed unto death. Section 42, verse 48 is there's just sometimes 
a time when it's time for them to go. Uh, a few years ago, President Uchtdorf talked about the power the faith has. And he said this, uh, faith is powerful and it often does result in miracles. But no matter how much faith we have, there are two things faith cannot do. For one, it cannot violate another person's agency. God will invite and persuade. God will reach out tirelessly with love and inspiration and encouragement, but God will never compel. That would undermine his great plan for our eternal growth. Then the second thing President Luther taught was the second thing faith cannot do is force our will upon God. We cannot force God to comply with our desires, no matter how right we think we are or how sincerely we pray. There are undoubtedly going to be moments where we call the priesthood over and we ask them to give a blessing. But we always have to ask when those blessings are given what Heavenly Father's desire is with regards to the person. When I was a missionary in Florida many, many years ago, um, I remember we had a new convert to the church who had joined the church, uh, but before he joined, he had uh, he had contracted HIV. He had AIDS by the time we knew him. And this guy was just a wonderful guy. He loved the gospel. He loved the missionaries. Uh, nobody spent more time with us or took us out more often to um, visit converts to teach the gospel. Well, um, unfortunately, his condition took a turn and he got really, really sick. And his mom, who was not a member of the church, uh, contacted us because she had seen elders from the church come and give him blessings and see him restored to health. Well, this time when we arrived at the hospital, um, we were told that he'd already been in a coma for a day or two and that it was about time for him to go. And one of the most heartrending moments of my life, his mom pulled us aside and said, I need you to heal him so that he can stay with me. Uh, we went in there. Uh, me and a, a, a brother from the ward that had accompanied me. And we placed our hands on his head and we pronounced the blessing, but the wording of the blessing wasn't that he would be healed. It was a release that it was time for him to go. And we were a little bit nervous when the blessing ended as to how his mom would react. But as soon as we looked over and saw the expression on her face, we sort of realized that the blessing uh, was probably more for her than it was for this young man. He had filled this calling, he was ready to go into the next life, but she needed a reassurance that the Lord would watch over him. He was, at this time, appointed unto death. And so we didn't ask for him to be healed. That's not how the blessing came out. Uh, we just asked for the Lord to accept his spirit, and the Lord, in doing so, uh, gave comfort to his mother. Now, as we're moving on through the law, let's go to verse 61. And verse 61 talks about the idea of the mysteries of the kingdom and that members of the church should also remember to seek further revelation. If you look in verse 62, even Joseph Smith had unanswered questions at this time. He wanted to know where the new Jerusalem was going to be built. And the Lord promises, I'm going to tell you eventually, uh, don't panic. Those blessings eventually do come to Joseph Smith as more and more knowledge is given to him. Then if we go down to verse 70, it talks about stewardship again among the members. This is mentioning consecration. It also says the elders and high priests who are appointed to assist the bishop as counselors and all things are to have their family supported out of the property, which is consecrated to the bishop for the good of the poor, for other purposes as before mentioned. So the bishop and his counselors are, are supported out of consecration. Now, we don't do this exactly today, but it's not a bad idea to keep an eye on your bishop and your counselors and see what they can do. In the church today, neither the bishop or the counselors get paid, but they do devote endless 
hours to what they do, and I think they get paid in blessings. Now, the last part, verses 74 down to verse 93, are the final revelation that was given to Joseph Smith as part of the law. This comes a couple weeks later, and it appears that it was asking uh, about people in the church that had committed really serious transgressions, including adultery. Uh, The Savior here outlines the basics for what we would call a church membership council, where we assist a person in repenting. Verse 80 says, If any man or woman shall commit adultery, he or she shall be tried before two elders of the church, or more, and every word shall be established against him or her by two witnesses of the church and not of an enemy. But if there be more witnesses than two, it is better. So it's talking about the idea that when a person engages in a really serious transgression, a council of the church, whether it's a bishopric or a stake high council, is heard to figure out the best way to try and help them to repent. Uh, More laws are going to be given concerning this as the as the time goes on, section 102 and section 107 talk about the same thing. But the idea is when it comes to moral transgressions, uh, the church has an obligation to, to help people. James E. Faust, member of the first presidency, said those who have keys, which include the judicial or disciplinary authority, have the responsibility for keeping the church cleansed from all iniquity. Bishops, stake presidents, mission presidents, and others who have the responsibility of keeping the church pure must perform this labor in the spirit of love and kindness. It should not be done in the spirit of punishment, but rather of helping. However, it is of no kindness to a brother or sister in transgression for their presiding officers to look the other way. So a lot to capture there, but the idea is basically that we don't do a person a favor when we pretend like they haven't engaged in a serious sin. But church membership councils, which sometimes result in a person uh, being put on probation or um, 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 having restrictions on church membership or having church membership withdrawn altogether aren't intended to be a punishing thing. They're intended to facilitate and help a person to repent. That can be really, really difficult and not fun, especially if you're the person who's receiving church discipline. But as President Faust counsels, it's not done out of a desire to punish someone. It's done out of a desire uh, to, to love them, to help them, and to facilitate their repentance. Now let's turn to section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants and talk a little bit about that for a moment. Section 43 is in many ways a repeat of what happened a few months earlier in section 28 concerning Hiram Page and his seer stone. You remember that Hiram Page had a seer stone and claimed that he could receive revelations for the entire church and Joseph Smith had to receive a revelation, section 28, that explained that there was only one person who could get revelation for the entire church and that was the president of the church. Well, apparently when they came to Kirtland, a similar thing happened. There was a woman whose last name was Hubble. We're not exactly sure who this is. The two most likely suspects are Laura Fuller Hubble, who was the older sister of Edson Fuller, a a person who joined the church, or Louisa Hubble, who was a convert from the Disciples of Christ and rejoined that church a few months after this revelation was received. Most historians think this is probably Louisa Hubble, but we don't know for sure. Regardless of what her identity was, uh, this woman uh, claimed that she was receiving commandments and revelations on behalf of the other church. Um, Joseph Smith later wrote a woman with great pretensions to revealing commandments, laws, and other curious matters. And as every person almost has advocates for both theory and practice and various notions and projects of this age, it became necessary to inquire the Lord. So once again, Joseph Smith has to go before the Lord and basically say, can you clarify this 
for us. Joseph Smith received section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which again establishes the principle of how revelation works in the church. So everybody can get revelation, but when it comes to revelation outside of their stewardship, that gets more complicated. For instance, verse 2, the Lord says, this is verse 43, section 43, verse 2, For behold, verily I say unto you, ye have received a commandment for a law unto my church, through him whom I have appointed unto you to receive the commandments and revelations from my hand. And this ye shall know assuredly, there is none other appointed to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken, if he abide in me. A little bit further on, he says something that's even more clarifying. Verse 7, he that is ordained of me shall come in at the gate and be ordained, as I've told you before, to teach those revelations which you have received and shall receive through him whom I have appointed. So anybody can get revelation for their, their own selves, uh, for their stewardship. But when it comes to a person claiming out of the blue to have a stewardship to receive revelation for the church, that's when we get a little uh, cautious. When the Lord says that they have to come in at the gate, that means that a person has to get their stewardship from someone that has keys. In other words, if you had a sister in your Relief Society stand up and say, I've got a revelation for the entire Relief Society, well, we're not saying that's not a real revelation. We're saying the revelation needs to come to, or at least be confirmed by, the presiding officer of the Relief Society, who's the Relief Society president. Same thing with the ward, stake, or the entire church. Everybody has to follow the, the the hierarchy that exists within the church. Otherwise, it becomes a house of chaos. And surprisingly, this isn't the only time this comes up. It comes up with Hiram Page. It comes up with Sister Hubble here in section 43. And it's going to come up again. In 1833, a similar situation happened. We had a branch of the church uh, where a woman um, in a branch of the church in Benson, Vermont, claimed that she had received visions of the Lord. So the branch president writes to Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith writes back and says, It is contrary to the economy of God for any member of the church or anyone to receive instruction for those in authority higher than themselves. Therefore, you will see the impropriety of giving heed to them. But if you have a vision or a visitation from a heavenly messenger, it must be for their own benefit and instruction. For the fundamental principles, government, and doctrine of the church are invested in the keys of the kingdom. So Joseph Smith isn't even saying here that an individual can't have a visitation from a heavenly messenger or a vision. Those are possible. But he's saying that the way that the church works, and because the church is a house of order, it's contrary to the way we do things for a person to receive revelation for someone higher in stewardship than them. So could you get a revelation telling you that you need to make a major life change, move, sell your house, get a new occupation? Yes, absolutely. But we need to be careful. It's not your job to tell the local leaders, whether it's your Relief Society president or your bishop, uh, how they're supposed to do their job. You can offer counsel and guidance, but revelation comes through organized channels within the church. Now, the Savior is saying here that they need to instruct each other. For instance, verse 8, I give unto you a commandment that when you're assembled together, you shall instruct and edify each other, that you may know how to act and direct my church, and how to act upon points of my law and commandments that have been given, unless shall be you become instructed in the law of my church and be sanctified by that which you have received. The basic idea being this, we go to the church to figure out how these laws work to allow our revelation to assist each other's and receive guidance from our church leaders. The church exists in order to preserve the integrity of the doctrine and also to 
experience and give us chances to apply the doctrine. Elder D. Todd Christofferson taught, in the church we not only learn divine doctrine, we also experience its application. As the body of Christ, the members of the church minister to one another in the reality of day-to-day life. All of us are imperfect. We may offend or be offended. We often test one another with our personal idiosyncrasies. In the body of Christ, we have to go beyond concepts and exalted words and have a real hands-on experience as we learn to live together in love. And that's one of the reasons why I like going to church. (laughs) Um, I, I like being there and having this kind of lab to use the principles of the gospel and and experience what it's like to live in a community and have to deal with real people. The gospel and everything works well in theory, but really the power comes when we learn to use it in practice to assist and help the people around us. You could be one of those people, for instance, that has all the baseball statistics memorized, but have never picked up a bat and a mitt. When the Lord asks you to serve within the church, you're gaining practical experience as to how it works, regardless of how broad or how deep your doctrinal knowledge is. With that in mind, let's continue on with the revelation. The Lord gives uh, a warning here. If you go a little bit further down in verse 25. I've called upon you by the mouth of my servants, by the ministering of angels, and by mine own voice, by the voice of thunderings, the voice of lightnings, the voice of tempests, the voice of earthquakes, great hailstorms, by the voice of famines and pestilence of every kind, and by the great sound of a trump, by the voice of judgment, and by the voice of mercy all the day long, and by the voice, voice of glory and the riches of eternal life, and would have saved you from an everlasting lasting salvation, but you would not. Jump to verse 28. Therefore labor ye in my vineyard for the last time, the last time I call upon the inhabitants of the earth. This is one warning repeated throughout the Doctrine and Covenants with some frequency that in the last days we're going to be warned and called to repentance, not just by the voice of prophets, apostles, and missionaries called by them, but through the natural disasters that happen around us. And we've seen some real large national natural disasters occur in the last little while. Uh, You might remember um, 2005 when Hurricane Katrina uh, hit New Orleans. Now, these natural disasters aren't always intended to punish. Sometimes they're intended to warn, to get people to repent. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, for instance, President Hinckley uh, spoke up. He said, many have lost all that they have. The damage has been astronomical. Literally millions have suffered. Fear and worry have gripped the hearts of many. Lives have been lost. But President Hinckley also said, with all this, there's been a great outpouring of help. Hearts have been softened. Homes have been opened. Critics love to talk about the failures of Christianity. Any who do that should look at what the churches have done in these circumstances. These denominations have accomplished wonders. So sometimes these natural disasters that happen aren't happening because the Lord is punishing a specific people. They're happening because he wants to open the door for them to hear and receive the gospel. Now, let's jump real fast to section 44 and make a quick stop here. Section 44 is just a real, real brief little section, only a few verses long, that talks a little bit about um, the responsibilities of elders and discusses them gathering together in conference. Now, in this, if you jump down to section 44, verse 6, the Lord gives this responsibility to the elders to visit the poor and the needy, administer to their relief that they may be kept until all things may be done according to the law which we have received. Now, this is obviously a reference back to the law of consecration, which has just been given in the obligation the church members have to assist the poor and the needy. 
In our day, one adjustment to the law of consecration is that not only do uh, ministering elders visit and make sure that families are doing okay, but that ministering sisters visit and do as well. You remember a couple of years ago when the program was changed from visiting, teaching, and home teaching to ministering, they asked Sister Jean Bingham, who was president of the Relief Society, and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, intern, to get up and speak about this new program. Um, Sister Bingham, for instance, spoke first and said, true ministering is accomplished one by one with love as the motivation. The value and merit and wonder of ministering is that it truly changes lives when our hearts are open and willing to love and includes courage and comfort. The power of ministering will be irresistible. Then Elder Holland spoke to the elders of the church and said, in spite of what we all feel are our limitations and inadequacies, and we all have challenges, nevertheless, May we labor side by side with the Lord of the vineyard, giving the God and Father of us all a helping hand with his staggering task of answering prayers, providing comfort, drying tears, and strengthening feeble knees. If we will do that, we will be more like the true disciples of Christ we are meant to be. And that's probably as good a place as any to end this discussion. The essence of these sections is the idea of consecration. And consecration is just looking after the poor and needy, thinking differently about the things that we own, and seeing the opportunities around us to do good and to be good and to help and uplift the people around us. There's so many things, brothers and sisters, that we can do, so many small and simple things to lift and help the people around us and to lighten their burdens, especially in difficult times like we live in right now. I want to share you my testimony that I know the Lord loves us and that he wants us to love his sons and daughters on his behalf. Thank you very much for your time. I've been Casey Paul Griffiths, and this is the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. Have a great week and be safe out there. Bye-bye.